afternoon, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Dogs Program. We are The Dogs, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we are here every Saturday to defend and promote public education. We've got an action-packed show, so let's just get right into it. I'll throw you over to Jeff for this week's press release. Jeff? Thanks, Dale. And this is Press Release 976, which, of course, you can find on our website, www.adogs.info. And so this is uh, from April 6th. And in recent days, the Fairfax media has been giving the ideas and opinions of Shadow Minister for Education, Matthew Donald Andrew Bark, a lot of oxygen in their publications. Firstly, on the age April 6, 23, he wrote an article which commenced... Ideology in the classroom is a divisive issue, both here in Australia and overseas. Those on the right often complain of left-wing dogma being pushed in schools. I'll agree, in part, there is a problem with ideology in our classrooms, neoliberal ideology. The education fad de jour is called positive education. As a former history teacher, allow me to give you a brief, a brief lesson. Then on the same day, April 6th, Madeleine Heffernan reported, Victoria should open up to 10 new select entry state schools for high-achieving students in Melbourne's fast-growing outer northern suburbs and in regional centres, Geelong, Bendigo and Ballarat, the state opposition says. The government has dismissed the idea, which, while education experts say more funding for all state schools, especially those in the country, would make a bigger difference. But opposition education spokesman Matt Bark said boosting the number of select entry schools from four to 14 would help education-focused migrants and bridge the achievement gap between city and country students. We've had a very significant population growth, and we know these schools are fabulous. And at the moment, for kids in the north of Melbourne and for kids in our regions, it's just not possible to get to a select entry state school, he said. Dogs wish to inform supporters of public schools, whatever their views on these particular issues, on the background of Matthew Donald Andrew Bark. He claims to have been a teacher in a former career, but his views appear reactionary and elitist. Where did he teach and what is his background? Wikipedia is informative. Matthew Bark is an Australian politician, teacher and historian. He has been a Liberal member for the Victorian Parliament since 2020 and is currently representing the Northeastern Metropolitan Region in the Legislative Council. Bark is currently serving in the Shadow Minister for Education, Shadow Minister for Child Protection and the Deputy Leader of the Opposition in the Legislative Council. His personal life, uh, Bark was born in Melbourne in 1983 and spent the beginning of his life in the foster care system for his, before his adoption. He attended Melbourne Grammar School, graduating in 2001. Bark attended the University of Melbourne and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts. He also holds a grad dip in teaching and learning from Charles Darwin University. In 2018, he was awarded a PhD in history from the University of Melbourne. Bark's research explored the existence of a criminal class in Victorian London and the effectiveness of measures to counter it. In 2020, Bach published a book based on his doctoral thesis. After graduating, Bach worked as a school teacher in the United Kingdom and as a ministerial advisor to Mary Woolridge when she was the Minister of Community Services, Mental Health and Women's Affairs in the Bailey government. Bach then served as senior leader, staff board representative and teacher of history and politics at Kerry Baptist Grammar School. He also served as the deputy principal and head of the senior school at Ivanhoe Girls Grammar School, where he taught English and history. Bach campaigned for the Conservative Party in the 2010 United Kingdom general election. In his candidacy for the Eastern Metropolitan Region, he cited his experience in campaigning in the United Kingdom and his success in winning back seats from the opposition while successfully campaigning in marginal seats as a strength in support for, of his candidacy. Bach lives in Melbourne with his wife and two daughters. His political career 
Uh, Bark won the Liberal Party's nomination to fill the vacancy caused by the resignation of Mary Wooldridge. He was sworn in as member for Eastern Metro Region in March 2020. He served in the shadow cabinet under Liberal leaders like Michael O'Brien, Matthew Guy, across child protection, youth justice, youth affairs, higher education, early childhood and attorney general's portfolios. In the lead-up to the 2022 election, Bark served as the Shadow Minister for Transport Infrastructure and was a vocal opponent of the Andrews government's suburban rail loop, citing inadequate planning and significant cost overruns. Following a redistribution of the 2022 election, Bark was re-elected to Parliament as a member of the North Eastern Metropolitan Region. In 2022, December, following the election of John Pesudo to the leadership of the Liberal Party, Bark was elected Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party in the Legislative Council and was appointed as Shadow Minister of Education and Shadow Minister for Child Protection. Bark regularly writes for The Age, The Herald Sun and The Sky News. So there you have it. Although his beginnings are in shadow, his adoptive parents could send him to one of the most elite private schools, and he has taught in that system. His educational ideas are meritocratic, with emphasis on the wealthy, advantaged and able. If he separates out the elite children from the rest, however, he does. how does he propose to do this? And what does he intend for the vast majority of Victorian children? Are they to become the hewers of wood and hauliers of water, to quote Robert Menzies, or members of the unemployed? Anyway, it's back to you, Dan. Thanks for that, Jeff. It's very interesting times indeed. We'll have a quick break and we'll be right back after this. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really school. concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly uh, assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 94198377. 
Because state schools are great schools. Great state schools. And welcome back to the DOGS program. Uh, this is the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And uh, before the break, we heard our press release, which was about uh, the Victorian Shadow Education Minister's, Minister Matthew Bark. And uh, the reason we're talking about him is because he's had a lot to say this week about uh, select entry state schools. I have the article here by Madeline Heffernan with Adam Carey titled Victoria Needs 10 More Select Entry State Schools, the Opposition Says. So Victoria's select entry schools educated 4,242 of Victoria's 1 million students last year. Their students were as advantaged as students at high-fee non-government schools, Ivanhoe Grammar, Eltham College and Kingswood College. No students at select entry state schools were Indigenous and close to 90% had a language background other than English. The Victorian opposition says the state should build 10 more select entry state schools over the next decade, primarily in Melbourne's northern suburbs and regional centres. The opposition says more select entry state schools would meet demand from migrant communities and help bridge achievement gap, the achievement gap between city and country students. Victoria should open up 10 new select entry state schools for high achieving students in Melbourne's fast growing outer northern suburbs and in regional centres Geelong, Bendigo and Ballarat, the state opposition says. The government has dismissed the idea, while educational experts say more funding for all state schools, especially those in the country, would make a bigger difference. But opposition education spokesman Matt Bark said boosting the number of select entry schools from 4 to 14 would help education-focused migrants and bridge the achievement gap between city and country students. We've had very significant population growth and we know these schools are fabulous. And at the moment, for kids in the north of Melbourne and for kids in our regions, it's just not possible to get to a, to a select entry state school, he said. Victoria has four select entry state schools for students in years 9 to 12. Mac Robertson Girls High School in the CBD, Melbourne High in South Yarra, Suzanne Corey High in Werribee and Nossel High in Berwick. The schools have about 4,200 students between them out of Victoria's 1 million students and are regularly among the state's best performers for VCE results. Their students are as, are as advantaged as those at high-fee non-government schools Ivanhoe Grammar, Eltham College and Kingswood College in Box Hill. My school data shows the four schools educate no Indigenous students, just 3.5% of their students are disadvantaged, and close to 90% have a language background other than English. By contrast, New South Wales has 48 select entry state schools, prompting concerns about a brain drain in that state's mainstream system as the share of high-achieving students at some government schools plummets. Mark said he was not advocating for the New South Wales model, 
but he said Victoria should plan for 10 new select entry state schools over the next decade because of strong population growth, educational inequality between metropolitan and country students, and the huge population of highly aspirational people who we know love the idea of select entry state education. That's a quote from Mr. Bark. 14 state schools have opened this year as part of the government's pledge to open 100 new state schools by 2026. To cut costs, Bark said some new schools could be changed to select entry. Monash University gifted education expert Dr Leonie Kronberg backed Bach's push. I find it really heartening because the research does support high ability grouping, she said. Kronberg said select entry students were more motivated and less likely to be silent when surrounded by like-minded peers. Recent research showed gifted students in high ability grouped classes showed higher achievement gains than gifted students in regular classes, she said. But Emma Rowe, a senior lecturer in education at Deakin University, said Victoria needed high-quality schools that were accessible and affordable for all members of the community, rather than more select-entry state schools. The majority of students attending these schools are from advantaged, highly educational, highly educated and professional families, and these schools largely do not enrol disadvantaged or Indigenous students, she said. There needs to be a quota that's reserved for low socioeconomic status students to encourage more diverse enrolment. Mark McClay, Chief Executive of the Country Education Partnership, which advocates for improvements to rural and regional education, said rural schools would prefer more funding for existing schools than new select entry state schools. We believe there is a discussion to be had around equity of funding between the private and state schools in regional areas, he said. And the dogs will agree. <laughs> Victorian students are among the lowest funded in the country, with funding for private school pupils growing at a faster rate than their public counterparts over the past decade, a recent Productivity Commission report found. The Andrews government has committed to funding non-government schools fully in 2023, but has yet to commit to fully funding state schools. Meanwhile, Country students continue to lag their metropolitan counterparts, both in NAPLAN and VCE. About 40 state schools offer accelerated learning programs, which allow high-achieving students to do VCE subjects early. These programs are confined to students who live in their school's zone and are already enrolled. Each government primary and secondary school also has access to a specialist teacher known as a high ability practice leader who helps students access online extension courses and excursions. A spokesperson for the Victorian government said it was focused on building new schools. More schools mean more opportunities for local kids to get a first class education close to home. That's why we're delivering 100 schools by 2026 with 75 already delivered, we're well ahead of schedule, the spokesperson said. Our student excellence program is ensuring high ability students are supported across the state, 
with better learning environments and teacher capabilities to deliver stronger educational outcomes. A new state school, the Centre for Higher Education Studies, opened in South Yarra this year for high achieving senior students. The only school of its type in Australia, students will get a head start on university by taking first year university subjects. The successfully completed studies will serve as credits to enrol in courses at universities such as Monash, RMIT, Federation and Swinburne. So, yes, that was from Madeline Heffernan and Adam Carey about Mr. Buck's proposed proposal to have 10 more select entry. What is it with the coalition and exclusionary tactics in children? Why are they so intent on segregation of students? Why? Is it because they want to entrench further the pockets of privilege that already exist? There's a lot to unpack in that article. It's very problematic, some of the assumptions around migrant communities and families and the separation of children on any basis in the long run is bad for society because students, young people need to learn how diverse their world actually is so that they don't grow up and go out into it completely unprepared for what an incredibly diverse world we live in. If children get to learn together, they get to cooperate together, they get to grow up together, it makes it all that much harder for them to hate as adults. But that's just my two cents. Uh, we'll, I dare say we'll be hearing more from Mr. Bach in the coming months as he is Victoria's Shadow Education Minister. We'll have a quick break now and then we'll come back with Sorrel. You're listening to The Dogs. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Welcome back, listeners. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR. And now I'm going to throw over to Sorrel, who's got some interesting stuff for us. What have you got, Sorrel? Thanks, Dale. So this article is entitled Positive Education is Driving Away Teachers and Sending Students Backwards. And it was originally published in The Age by Matthew Bark, who writes, Ideology in the classroom is a divisive issue both here in Australia and overseas. 
Those on the right often complain of left-wing dogma being pushed in schools. I'll agree, in part, there is a problem with ideology in our classrooms, neoliberal ideology. The education fad du jour is called positive education. As a former history teacher, allow me to give you a brief lesson. Positive education is the latest iteration of the positivity movement that came to prominence in 1952. In that year, the eccentric American preacher and lifestyle guru Norman Vincent Peale published his best-selling book, The Power of Positive Thinking. It's rubbish, obviously, but the basic premise is that just by looking on the bright side, we'll be more successful, happier, and our mental health will improve. Peel mentored a sorry Peel mentored a young Donald J Trump cue alarm bells who accepted that by thinking positively good things will happen. Remember that election he won in 2020, or the mob he incited to storm the Capitol on January 6, 2021, based on that lie? Studies have totally discredited the core underpinnings of the positivity movement. For example, it's well documented Americans are both the most positive and the most anxious people in the world. Terrifyingly, it also has been shown to create mini Donald Trumps. As psychologist Dr. Jean Twang has said, the movement can foster a defensive egoism or narcissism. Sound familiar? Nonetheless, as Professor Mick Power demonstrates in his book, Understanding Happiness, positive education stems directly from Peel's kooky ideas. In short, positive education seeks to combine elements of traditional education with the study of happiness, maximizing positive emotions in children. So what does this look like in schools? Activities in which kids are told to look on the bright side and recognize their own negativity bias. Races in which everyone gets a ribbon, tests being scrapped because they make children unhappy, and games where no scores are kept, hence nobody loses. The premise of positive education, the notion that increasing positive emotions and eliminating negative ones improves the well-being of children, is being embedded across the curriculum, according to the Victorian government's Academy of Teaching and Leadership. Its website contains numerous articles and resources approvingly referencing the foundation of positive education, Martin Seligman, who helpfully recommends stop being such a grouch. It's not just that positive education has no evidentiary backing and doesn't work. Another significant problem is that its implementation needlessly waylays teachers. Victoria is dealing with an acute workforce crisis there are currently 1,363 jobs vacant in Victorian government schools alone. And teachers routinely report that a key reason for quitting is the huge and growing workload beyond their core teaching responsibilities, forcing teachers to learn about and then teach and then often assess the tenets of positive education is therefore only making a bad situation worse. Yet these aren't my primary objections to positive education. Its most invidious outcome is the justification of inequality, which it thereby serves to entrench. Dr. Barbara Einhenreich, a scientist and order, a scientist and author, sorry, is spot on when she says the positivity movement is a trick that the rich and powerful use to keep people who are poor, vulnerable, disadvantaged, or disabled quiet, focused on anything but the structural factors that hold them back. 
As she says, the movement is a self-serving hoax. Just think positive and you too could be president. Talking about presidents, Ronald Reagan approved of these retrograde ideas so much he gave Norman Vincent Peale America's highest civilian honour, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The snake oil salesmen and women of positive education continue to fool politicians, it seems. They openly advocate cruel neoliberal policies. Seligman, for instance, has argued against wealth distribution above a threshold of $11,000 because beyond this point, he said, there is no correlation between income and happiness. He's wrong. As numerous studies have shown, even if he wasn't, his position is radical, divisive and fails to consider the many awful impacts of of poverty and inequality. As a liberal, I believe deeply in individual responsibility. I also believe in equality of opportunity, regardless of a person's circumstances or background. No redistribution of wealth above such a low threshold is both mean and plain bonkers. I know you're used to politicians on the right arguing ideology does not belong in the classroom. The odious Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, came to prominence fighting progressive ideology in schools. He has passed don't say gay laws and rails against drag queens, which according to many in America pose a greater danger to children than the guns that continue to kill them in record number. I'll agree with the American right-wing culture warriors on one thing. There is a problem with harmful dogma in our classrooms. It's just that it's neoliberal dogma. We've got huge problems in our education system, not only a growing shortage of teachers, but steadily failing learning outcomes and ever-widening educational inequality. These issues are only exacerbated by fads like positive education. Let's bin it. Matthew Bark is the author of this article and he is Victoria's Shadow Minister for Education and Shadow Minister for Child Protection. And before that, he was previously a teacher, deputy principal and historian. And we have some comments by Plutonius who writes, how about scrapping the VIT as recommended by the government's own inquiry? That would be one good step to keeping teachers. I don't know of any other profession where a statutory authority treats you like a criminal and requires constant paperwork to keep your credentials current. I guess aircraft pilots have to do a lot of work to maintain credentials, but at least they're not treated like de facto criminals. And one other comment attached to the articles is by Dan Waters. And he says, I agree that positive psychology has no place in school curriculum, but it was not lefty politicians who implemented or championed its implementation. It was implemented into private schools initially by right-wing consulting university academics for exorbitant fees approved by private school boards made up of entirely right-leaning board members who believed at the time that positive psychology would give their students a competitive advantage over other private schools. Pretty soon, every private school just had to have one of their own positive psychology programs implemented and rolled out by one of the select few positive psychology experts found in the Australian found in Australian university academia 
positive, positive psychology was rolled out exclusively in high-end, top-tier private schools for the first decade because they paid the ridiculously big bucks for what amounted to nothing more than a buzzword keenly marketed and deftly spread by a profit-obsessed American academic named Martin Seligman. So uh, Dan Waters finishes by saying, um, positive psychology, helping wealthy, well people boost their level of self-importance since 1991. We'll have a quick break and then we'll come back. You're listening to The Dog. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australian make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is king. None of us are free. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR Community Radio, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools Program. And we've got another interesting article. I'll throw straight over to you, Jeff. What have you got for us, Jeff? Uh, Thanks, Dale. Yeah, I've got a media release in the New South Wales Teachers Federation from the 9th of April, and it's entitled Record Numbers of Teachers Leaving New South Wales Schools. The number of teachers resigning from New South Wales public schools has doubled in two years as unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries take their toll. Leaked Department of Education figures also show that almost one in five teachers are now leaving within their first five years in the profession. New South Wales Teachers Federation President Angelo Gavrilatis said the alarming figures highlighted the recruitment and retention crisis the state was facing and the concealment and lies of the former coalition government. 
These figures are a direct reflection of the unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries of teachers, Mr. Gavrilatis said. In just two years, the number of permanent teachers resigning from the profession doubled from 929 in 2020 to 1,854 in 2022. The number is almost triple the 626 who resigned in 2016. We now have almost one in five permanent teachers quitting in their first five years of their career, 19% in 2022, compared to 11.6% in 2021 and 8.2% in 2018. That is by far the highest rate recorded. A record 4.2% quit within their first year of teaching in 2022. We are in serious danger of losing the future of the profession. This is the legacy of the coalition government. Every year under the coalition, the workload of teachers rose and every year their salaries fell compared to other professions. The coalition failed on salaries and workloads and it is teachers and students who are now paying the price and worsening teacher shortages across New South Wales. Instead of acting on the problem, the coalition tried to cover it up, claiming there were no teacher shortages and denying, denying unsustainable workloads and uncompetitive salaries were driving people out of the profession. Teachers are overworked and underpaid. It is simple as that. They are working one and a half times the hours they get paid for. We already have an acute, acute shortages of teachers across New South Wales, and it's only going to get worse unless there is significant action on salaries and workloads. National data just released shows one quarter of New South Wales teachers believe they will stay in the profession until they re retire, 25.8% in 2022 compared to 43.6% in 2020. The top reasons for leaving are workload and recognition and reward. If we don't pay teachers what they are worth, we won't get the teachers we need. We welcome the commitment of the new government to axe the wage cap and reduce the workload of teachers. We look forward to negotiations beginning as soon as possible on salary increase that will help, help, help attract and retain teachers in the profession. We also need the government to get moving as quickly as possible on its commitment to cut the administration workloads of teachers. So that was an interesting um, take on what's happening in New South Wales and uh, a sad reflection on years of Tory government. Back to you, Dale. Thanks, Jeff. And now I think we'll have a bit of music. So let's listen to Billy Bragg and Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, as we always are. It may have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline but on the Che Guevara Highway Filling up with gasoline Fidel Castro's brother spies A rich lady who's crying Over the luxury's disappointment So he walks over and he's trying To sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world is just around the corner Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. Someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer 
and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 flame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics, he asks me what the use is. I offer him embarrassment for my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the great leap forward Jumbo sales are organised And pamphlets have been posted there's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the great leap forward Oh, one leap forward, two leap back Will politics get me to sack Waiting for the great leap forward Well, it comes the future and you can't run from it If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it just heard from Billy Bragg and Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital in Melbourne, or streaming live on the World Wide Web at www.3cr.org.au. And now we're going to go overseas and see what's happening in the US and UK. Over to you, Jeff. What have you got for us? Thanks, Dale. And and we've got an article from Diana Ravitch's blog uh, by Robert B. Hubble, and it's artic- the article's titled "Our Democracy is Not a Theocracy Yet." Uh, he's a daily blogger whose reflections on the news are consistently interesting, says uh, Diana Ravitch. Religious extremists have continued their assault on the status of women as equal citizens under the law and full participants in the liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. After the Supreme Court's reactionary majority engaged in the charade of returning the question of reproductive liberty to the people's representatives, a rogue federal judge in Texas has issued a nationwide ban on Mifeprestone which, uh, because of his personal disagreement with the FDA's scientific conclusions regarding the safety of the drug. The opinion of equal parts is equal parts junk science and relig- religious screed. It is an insult to the rule of law and the dignity of women as human beings with control over their bodies and reproductive choices. 
the opinion is even more pernicious because mifepristone, forgive my pronunciation, is frequently prescribed to help women safely manage miscarriages. In the absence of mifepristone and because of dozens of laws criminalising abortion, a single federal judge with no science or medical training has ordered millions of women to risk infection, sepsis and death before they can receive medical intervention in a miscarriage. The DOJ has announced that it will appeal to the ruling, appeal a ruling to the arch-conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which may uphold the ruling. A competing and contrary ruling in Washington State suggests that the US Supreme Court will be forced to inter intervene soon. The religious extremists who successfully took down Roe are now using that victory as a roving license to attack fundamental liberties everywhere. They have misread Dobbs, the limited mandate, the will of the electorate and the rule of law. Whatever Dobbs stands for, it did not convert our democracy into a theocracy, which is the premise of Judge Kaczmarek's first in our nation's history ruling by a federal judge overturning the scientific judgments of the FDA. Judge Kaczmarek's ruling is not only wrong, but is also dangerous in its implications. Under the reasoning adopted by Judge Katzmarek, the next logical step is a ruling declaring fetal personhood under the Constitution and an order mandating every state to criminalise abortion. I'm not being hyperbolic. I, sh I urge you to read this superb analysis by Mark Joseph Stern in Slate, um, which is called Mark Katzmarek's ruling against the Mifeprestone will force the Supreme Court to act fast. Stern writes, Katzmarek deemed fetuses to arguably be people who are killed by Mifeprestone, seeking to establish the fetal personhood that has always been the end goal of the movement. For support, he cited a brief but by, by anti-abortion advocate, Robert P. George, asserting that the Constitution compels every state to outlaw abortion. There are more dangerous statements in Katzmarek's opinion, which are detailed in Stern's analysis. While we should not surrender to alarmism, not a comment directed to Stern, we must be realistic about the path to victory. Republican leaders now know that they have overstepped. Editorials in conservative newspapers and conservative commentators are raising the alarm that Republicans have overstepped the advantage granted in Dobbs. See the op-ed by Michael Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times, the abortion ban backlash is starting to freak out Republicans. But the Republican Party is captive to the religious extremists who endo whose endorsements are now the price of election in Republican primaries. In other words, there's no going back for the GOP and things may get worse for us before they get better. But Republicans have locked themselves into an irreversible losing trajectory and are already paying the price. But we must step up our efforts as they ratchet up theirs. We can do that. We have begun to do that. We must continue and must not lose hope. We will win. They will lose. It is just a matter of time. In Tennessee, the anti-democratic, racially-based expulsion of two young black representatives from the Tennessee House by the GOP has attracted worldwide condemnation. People outside of America who had never heard the name Tennessee now associate it with the historical birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan and the modern home of the most virulent strains of racism in America. A reader, CC, posted elect, selected citations in the comment section with a brief comment. Justin Jones told the Tennessee legislature that the whole world was watching. Looks like he could be right. Should Tennessee legislators care what the world media thinks about Tennessee? If only Tennessee aspires to be part of the global interconnected business community that will drive commerce in the future, like Nissan and Volkswagen, with both, which both have plants in Tennessee. If Tennessee wants to rely on its other leading industry, entertainment, for future growth, it should consider whether most performers in the entertainment industry want to be associated with a state whose current top export is hate. And my apologies and sympathies for Democrats and independents in Tennessee who are fighting the good fight. We need you and will continue to support you. Everyone understands that the hate is coming from the GOP leadership, not from the good people of Tennessee who are struggling to create a more perfect democracy.
But Tennessee Republicans have not learned their lesson. Despite universal condemnation, major media outlets are reporting that Republican leaders are threatening the county commissions that might reappoint Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, as they are legally entitled to do. Worse, Republicans are threatening not to seat Jones and Pearson if they are re-elected. It simply doesn't get more totalitarian than that. The reaction from the business community has been muted because the events occurred late in a week that include observances for Easter and events uh, and Passover. But it's hard to fathom that the Memphis Grizzlies NBA playoff games next week will not be affected by black athletes speaking their views on the events of Thursday. It's difficult to see why a nearly all-black University of Tennessee football team would play in the face of such blatant racism. It's difficult to see why FedEx Jack Daniels, tractor supplier Nissan, would want to support GOP legislators who committed one of the most overtly racist acts in a generation. The state of Tennessee is yet to feel the business backlash that will follow the legislature's action on Thursday. When it does, Tennessee Republicans will realise they have roused a sleeping giant. Now we're going to look at a different form of... Uh, of entitlement and going to the UK where there's an article in the observer by James Tapper on the 8th of April. And it's, it's about um, what happens to you when you go to private school. And this one's called going to private school makes you twice as likely, likely to vote Tory. The study finds research reveals that private education is directly linked to holding right-wing views and voting conservative in midlife. Uh, having a private school education means a person is twice as likely to become a loyal conservative voter as someone with a state education, regardless of their wealth or class background, a new study has found. Researchers from the University College of London used data that tracked the lives of 6,917 British people born in the same week in 1970 to quantify how a private education affected their voting and attitudes. The team, led by Professor Richard Wiggins, established that being educated privately also made men and women 50% more likely to hold right-wing opinions. In an article in the British Sociological Association journal, The Sociology, the researchers say our key conclusion is that among males and females, there is a notable direct association between private schooling in the mid-1980s and later voting conservative and the expression of right-wing attitudes in midlife, which cannot be explained by family background and related factors. They said the findings were significant because a disproportionate number of private school alumni have reached positions of substantive influence in public and commercial life. Although only 7% of the general population are privately educated, 41% of the Conservative MPs, 44% of newspaper columnists, columnists, and a third of British chairs of the FTSE 100 companies went to independent schools, according to the Sutton Trust, a charity which aims to improve social mobility. Last year, it highlighted 19 out of the 31 members of Rishi Sunak's cabinet were privately schooled, a similar ratio to the cabinets of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Although there is a clear association between private education and voting conservative, the UCL researchers set out to establish whether this might simply be a reflection of what Wiggins called a constellation of possible influences, such as a person's class background, family income, or their parents' taste in newspapers. No one is claiming that it's an explicit, explicit object of teaching in private schools to inculcate students with conservative political attitudes, Wiggins said. Is it something to do with your peers, the kind of people you meet when you're there, or are there implicit assumptions in the way teachers talk about society? A team found that 64% of privately educated people in the study voted conservative at least once, and 30% voted for them at, at three or four elections. That compares to 39.9% of state school educated people voting conservative at least once and 15.5% voting three or four times. By using a statistical method called path analysis, they found several factors influencing people's decision to vote conservative. 
Some factors had only an indirect path to voting behaviour, according to the model. Having parents with, who read a right-leaning newspaper was a pathway to the expression of right-wing attitudes at the age of 16, which in turn had a direct path to voting Conservative. Other factors, including a private education, had a direct path to Conservative voting. Having a university degree made people in the British cohort study less likely to vote Tory, but did not make them any more or less likely to hold right-wing views. Private education had more effect on men's tendency to vote Conservative, they found, yet women were more likely to hold right-wing views after going to private school than men. Wiggins said that despite their findings, there were still very large differences in patterns of voting behaviour in the groups. I was quite surprised to see there were not that many diehard Conservative voters, even in people in their 40s, he said. We're only seeing a fifth of these private school attendees voting solidly Conservatives over the, over the four elections. It's not a landslide. But what does what it does show is that um, a private education is more likely to lead to people voting Conservative in the UK, and I would dangerously suggest that the same is true here. Anyway, back to you, Dar. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, those pockets of privilege get entrenched and they're like grass stains. <laughs> Hard to get out. <laughs> Well, that's enough bad news. Let's have a good news story. Our Great State School of the Week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Officer Primary School. Officer Primary School provides a sharing, caring and friendly family atmosphere. Students are the highest priority and are always treated with consideration and respect. They are encouraged to accept responsibility for their own physical, academic, social and emotional development. The individual rights and the needs of every child are recognised in all aspects of school life. Their school is committed to the provision of an exciting and challenging learning environment. Officer Primary School is very proud of its more than 130 years of history as the key provider of primary schooling in the area and the strong links it has built with officer families. As an older school, they are blessed with attractive grounds enhanced by a number of stately mature oak trees that provide shade and protection from the summer sun. There are numerous areas for students to play, learn, and relax. The more traditional layout of their classrooms provide families with an alternative to the busy open learning environments offered at the more modern local schools. Their school motto, learn to live, live to learn, is strongly reflected through their daily practices in teaching and learning. They recognize that for students to become engaged learners, the learning environment needs to value and build upon individual strengths and provide support for individual needs. Their teaching and education support staff work hard to enhance the learning outcomes for all students in literacy and numeracy through explicit teaching and differentiated learning tasks. The academic program is complemented by a range of extracurricular programs that provide opportunities for students to explore and develop their strengths and interests. Some of these include school camps and excursion programs, instrumental music lessons, sporting clinics, inter-school sports, athletics, cross-country, 
Poop Time, Leadership Programs and State Schools Spectacular. Doesn't that sound great? Lots of activities there. Now some facts and figures from ACARA for you. The school has 139 pupils, so quite a small school. The ICSIA value of the school is 988, which is well below the average of 1,000. This is a largely disadvantaged community. 6% of students have parents from the top quartile in income. 19% have parents that earn in the second highest quartile of income. 38% have parents that earn in the second lowest quartile of income. And 37% of students have parents that are earn in the bottom quartile. 15% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 1% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of disadvantaged students with a dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $16,041 above the Gonski resource standard to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $529,048 from the federal government and $2.065 million from the state government, $53,000 from fees and $30,780 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $57,879. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are more than just fine. They are above average in writing and the improvement of the students over time is greater than that of similar schools. Well, congratulations. That all sounds fantastic. Office of Primary School, you are our Great State School of the Week. Yes, thank you, Sorrel. Congratulations to Officer Primary School. That's all we've got time for today. So thank you, Sorrel and Jeff. Uh, hopefully we'll be back with a full team next week. Who knows? Uh, but uh, until next week, if you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Dot info, or you can find podcasts of our program on the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Uh, but until next week, from all of us here at the Dogs, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I. 
takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find your You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.